Welcome to the 69th edition of the Guna Podcast, recorded on Monday evening after Arsenal's soporific 0-0 home draw with Blackburn. Funnily enough, our previous recording was after Arsenal's 0-0 home draw with Sunderland, as someone once said, plus sa chance. This podcast is sponsored by the website for all your unofficial Arsenal t-shirt needs, gunashirts.com. I'm your host, David Udo, and we've got something a little special for you this time round. Suggested by a previous guest panellist who has joined us again this evening, it's a bit of a State of the Guna Nation edition. We've dispensed with the usual rabble and have drafted in some voices slightly more respected for their views on all things Arsenal, so please let me introduce them. Firstly, the man whose idea this particular experiment was, which has earned him a place on the panel alongside some very erudite company and myself, recently returning from having watched the English cricket team get knocked out of the World Cup in a very warm and balmy Sri Lanka, it's an old friend of the Guna podcast and Arsenal Supporters Trust spokesman Tim Payton. Hello. <laughs> Next up, our first special guest... Talk about coming from humble origins, this respected national football journalist made her debut as a writer in the late 1980s in a dubious publication entitled The Gooner. Things have improved significantly since then, as she now graces the pages of The Observer, but she hasn't forgotten us, so it's a very warm welcome to Amy Lawrence. Hi. And last, but by no means least, I, I, I can't stress enough, this is what Kev's put in front of me, he might be a <laughs> ringer for Richard Granting with Nail and I. And is currently nursing a glass of chilled white wine. But we are honoured that he has agreed to join us to dispense his unique perspective on all matters Arsenal. Amongst many other things, he is France football's correspondent for the game in this country. Bonsoir to Philippe Beauclair. Bonsoir to everybody. Uh, so, I'm just going to read what's on the page in front of me as um, I've been extolling the <coughs> virtues of some of our team for about 72 hours solid and bored everyone. So, Tim, Arsene Wenger seems unable to motivate the players sufficiently. Do you think it's a case that he's lost the dressing room in terms of the players not responding or that the dressing room is lost and in need of something more? In terms of losing the dressing room, and I'd like Amy's views on this, you normally get more of a sense coming out in the newspapers, words to journalists, briefings, sense of unhappiness there. I don't see that kind of briefing coming out, but I do see a body language on the pitch and even a body language and words that Arsene Wenger himself is using after matches that suggests something isn't sparking, something isn't right, and they don't quite know what it is. I mean, Amy, would you agree? Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think is so uh, frustrating a lot of the supporters is that everybody, and that's not just Arsenal, but the players as well, talks a jolly good game, <laughs> but it's, it's what you're seeing in front of you is not reflecting what they're saying. Um, and I've not heard very much public pronouncements of discontent from many people within the camp. Um, and yet, as you say, it, it, you know, it's, not, it's not right. And, and what often happens when somebody has been somewhere for a very long time, as Arsene has, is things do become stale. And if you look at um, the past few years, obviously his, the great project that everybody is talking about at the moment, the playing staff, uh, a lot of them have been around for quite a while now. And I think that Arsene, everybody knows, is uh, one of his great whether it's an, a, probably an attribute and at the same time a, um, a character flaw, is his stubbornness. And I think that's got him a lot of the, th the great things in, in his uh, career and a lot of the successes, but it's also quite clearly become a bit of a problem. And it does, to, to me, look like a lot of these players have heard the same... A bit like the fans, they've all heard him say the same stuff and it's mm -hmm. not working or it's not, it's not filtering through anymore. So I've, I've long been of the opinion that... I think probably what hurts so much at the moment is Philly will probably feel the same thing. We're lucky enough, very privileged to have 
um, spent some time with Arsene and got to know him a little bit over the last few years. And he's such a fantastic bloke, and he's so interesting, and he's um, he's really something for Arsenal to be proud of. And it hurts like hell to see the kind of mess that it, it's mm. turning into. And to sit there and think, is it is it the end? You know, the kind of questions that people are saying, is it time for him to go? Some of the actual downright abuse that he seemed to be getting, it's really tough to take because you don't want to see it. It's like, it's like if you see somebody you love and they're not very well and something's not right and you don't really know how to handle it and you don't really know what to say and it's all a bit of an elephant in the room situation where it there's big stuff going on here and you don't want to have to face up to what it might mean because nobody wants Arsenal's career at Arsenal when it eventually ends whether it's sooner or later to be a bad ending but it's very sour at the moment, it seems. Philippe, I'm, I'm aware that you used to talk to Arsene on a, on a regular basis. I mean, one of the quotes that sticks with me from the last couple you, of years was the that... The um, thing is to say used to, because that's, I would complete what, what Bruno was just saying, mm. is that I, I still talk to Arsene from time to time, but um, he has changed a great deal over the last two years in his relationship with the press uh, and the media, including the press that he used to have, I wouldn't say a privileged relationship, but quite a close relationship with... He's changed his day-to-day arrangements. The pre-match presses are changing, aren't they, and being shut down. And he's, and far more, he's far pricklier than he used to be. Uh, he sometimes at press conferences interprets a, a perfectly normal question by any journalist as an attack or criticism of what he's doing and what he's done. And you, you can feel he's on the defensive, and, um, which is quite remarkable when you look at what the team, the, the stage at which the team was just a few weeks ago. Let's remember that. A few weeks ago, this team was in four competitions and with the chance of winning all four. Uh, but he's changed. Um, the other thing, when it comes to the players, um, I was very surprised by how strong his words were after the nil-nil against Blackburn um, in both the press briefings he did afterwards. And... I'd never heard him talk about the players in such a tough way. I mean, it's, it's about the tone as much as about the words, isn't it? And he said something, I think I've, I've got it here. Well, he talked about things like, you know, there's no pace in our game, there's a flat performance. And he said quite a big, it's quite a big concern to see what we saw today. It's not the kind of things he used to say. He said, my player, uh, very few players look to have the resources I mean, it's, it's almost as he felt that uh, he'd been almost betrayed by his players. They, his own body language was very significant. And you can feel he's asking himself questions. Um, maybe it's questions about, should I, as my project, come to a natural end? Is it as far as I can get with this group of players whom I've nurtured, supported, um, defended to the hilt for all these years? Do I need to bring some new blood or older blood at, uh, in the summer? Or do I need to look at my own investment in the club? And then again, when the question was put to him late in the, the breast briefing for the Mondays, uh, his, his answer was extremely evasive. Nobody seemed to um, hook onto that, but he was evoking the fact that he would have to think about his role at the end of the season. Now, this is something I've never heard Arsene Wenger do. And he's obviously, um, I wouldn't say depressed about it, but given all this circumstances in his private life as well um, and what is happening at the club I think he's really at, at a point where he's, yes, he has to ask himself questions um, and 
also all the more so since he moved the goalpost at the beginning of the season. Um, he'd done it a bit for 2009, 2010, saying, you know, we're in a position where we can start thinking about winning titles. At the beginning of this season, it was, we're going to win a title. Mm. And these words, you know, he hasn't forgotten them. Do you think, <coughs> is it, we're at the stage now with Arsene Wenger, it's almost a, a Captain Ahab, Moby Dick type situation where it's become an almost unhealthy obsession um, to, to win with this organically grown side. Grown side. I mean, something that, that sort of struck me was um, how quickly he signed his contract at the start of the season. Normally he, he will drag it out to November or December. Yeah. Uh, there was David Dean's infamous comment about uh, Roman Abramovich, which was Arsene told me, he asked if he could have a weekend to think about it, and it was the longest two days of my life, and so he said, no, I'll, I'll be staying. Um, it, he's aware that he could take any job in world football, but he, he signed up quite quickly this time. I mean, Amy, I mean, do you put any huge significance to the fact that he couldn't sign it quick enough and just get back on with, with this obsession? I just think that there's something very strange in the air where he, ha- he has had this grand plan um, for all this time, and part of that grand plan, I think he acknowledges, was that it wasn't going to yield instant rewards. And he never said that openly, um, but I think he realised while he started off basically trying to fund the stadium and the move and everything by going for the youth policy and hanging on in there and qualifying for the Champions League and actually, from an economic point of view, being tremendously successful... Um, I also think that it's important to stress, and I find it really drives me up the wall sometimes when you keep seeing all these people banging on. And I'm not talking about external people, but I'm talking about supporters of the club banging on about, oh, I'm fed up, we haven't won anything for X number of years. Well, you know what? Get a life, open a history book, and you know there have been many, many periods of the club's history in the past where it's been far longer stretches without winning things. And there are plenty of other clubs out there who haven't won stuff. Um, it's a very strange situation to be in because people don't have any historical context anymore. Mm. We're living in this instant gratification culture <clears> in football where it's all about now and it, to the extent where it's all about one individual game, never mind even a, a couple of weeks or months or a season. Um, and, and the judgments are so harsh. I, could, I couldn't agree more. It, it drives me insane hearing the comparison to the Invincible team. The whole reason that Invincible tag sticks is because it happened to one team once in 100 years. It was magical, it was different, but people used that almost as the benchmark. Yes. Why hasn't he got another team like that? Of course, but what's interesting is, you know, that was at 2004, which is, yeah. uh, might feel like a long time ago, but it's really not that long yeah. ago. Now, if you think about it, Arsenal fans are incredibly spoiled. Um, I was talking to Kevin, the editor of The Gooner, uh, only today, and we were talking about how this, this strange, very, very negative atmosphere... Um, around the club. When was the last time there was this much kind of uh, uh, really gut- brutal, gutural, gutural it? discontent at the club? Well, it was 1983, Terry Neal. That's nearly 30 years ago. Now, that tells you how spoiled Arsenal fans are and how lucky they are to have had such a long period. Even when you look at the end of the George Graham era, um, the, the Arsenal won the, won the Cup double, which had never been done before in 93. The European Cup and his Cup in 94, which was, you know, incredible from the club's point of view, mm. um, only the second ever European trophy, and it was only about six months later when George was gone, so there really wasn't that same, although things were in decline, mm. there wasn't enough time for things to really begin to drag everybody yeah. down. Now, the problem about what's going on now is that there is this feeling of groundhog season, where all the problems that are coming to our head at this time of the year, the same old problems, goalkeeper, <laughs> lack of defensive 
whatever you want to call it. Um, not enough experienced players. Where are the leaders? Why does why are we always getting injuries? Why are uh, uh, is everybody getting to a great position and oh, suddenly it all falls apart like a ton of bricks come February, March? It's the same story. And the fact that it has been going on for a number of seasons now, I think is what's making people, you know, get so irate and think, well, is it ever going to change? And the only person who can change it is either Arsene himself if he changes his policy or somebody else mm. making the decision for him and changing things. What is not so paradoxical about the fact that people are, win I mean, the Arsenal fan are probably the whingiest in, in, the, in the Premiership and probably in the whole world. Um, and, and that's absolutely true. Uh, which actually drives me around the bend as well, because they just don't realise how lucky they are. One of the reasons is precisely the success that Wenger has had when he arrived, that people got spoiled and also a, a new bunch of fans arrived who suddenly have started to own the place, as it were, uh, when I think they, they've never owned it. They arrived late. They are the people who arrived when, you know, Vieira and Petit were there. They're the people who were there, there in, in 2001, 2002. And, and, and suddenly they've developed this idea that we've got to win it every year, you know, and, and so forth. And these people are extremely vocal and take what really drives me even more around the band, an, an absolutely extraordinary, wicked, vicious pleasure in, uh, in wallowing in, in, in their anger and, and their disappointment or whatever it is, which is very Arsenal and which is, I think, strangely enough, it contributes to the, cli the current climate. Because I don't think we can we can possibly imagine that this feeling of discontent, which is brought by this very paradoxical attitude, doesn't filter to the players and to mm -hmm. Arsene Wenger. They're aware of it. You know, they they they, they know about it. Um, and it's. But the the strange thing, well, not the strange thing, is that we are now at a point where the people who have stood by Arsene's project for all this time, much against their own wishes are starting to agree with what some of these people were saying a year, two years ago, when honestly they had no right of saying that. Mm. But we've come to the point now where we have our own criticism, and sometimes actually our own criticism would be even fiercer because we've been for so long defending and defending and defending the fact that Skilecci would come in, or uh, the fact that you know Manuel Almunia uh, would go back in gold, all these decisions and and sometimes failed experiments, which I think we've got to talk about, because I think some of the players, every player for Arsene Wenger is an experiment, and some of them have failed. Mm. And I'm wondering, is, has Arsene got the will uh, to realise, because he knows better than us, that, yes, it has failed. It's time for this guy to go. It's time to, to, check, to look for something else. Two, two of the expressions you, you've used, Philippe, um, that are resonating around, around my head um, are this notion of stubbornness and, and failed experiments. And um, As an Arsenal fan, I, I have no problem with us losing. I have no problem with us losing to a better team, just so long as at the end of those 90 minutes, you have 11 players on the floor, covered from head to toe in mud, Having in a situation where they can't give any more, the last time that really comes to mind is the 2006 Champions League final, when I don't think I've ever been more proud of an Arsenal team, notwithstanding Thierry Henry missing two one-on-ones or El Nunia, as far as I'm concerned, as a goalkeeper, looking at oh, another goalkeeper scoring two own goals. Um, <laughs> notwithstanding that, the team gave everything that day, and I think that's partly what prompted Thierry Henry to make his announcement on the on the plane home yep. that you know what we've got to start something really great here. Um, 
But notwithstanding that, it's it, this notion of stubbornness and failed experiments. These players, often, I mean, Danielson, I'm I'm convinced is is in the squad purely. The D um, word. To, it's to save money on laundry. I don't think he he has to wash his kit after games uh, because the, the the sheer efforts there. If you look at the the, the Guardian Observer chalkboard, um, he makes a lot of passes. Yes, but he doesn't cover the ground. Um, he doesn't try, and it's plainly obvious for everybody to see. Yet, if you don't, as far as I'm concerned, if you don't give yourself the best chance of winning, therein lies the frustration. And okay, when the, when Project Wenger, as has been christened by, Kesson, uh, by Kevin, started, there wasn't a money in the player trading account. We were in the process of moving stadiums. We were getting by. You know, we were feeding ourselves um, hand to mouth. Uh, but we're now in a situation where our new CEO is quite adamant and will tell us over and over again there is money in the player trading account. It's plainly obvious that our goalkeeper, who has never been deemed fit by a Spanish coach to play a single game in La Primera Liga, uh, is apparently good enough, uh, according to Arsene Wenger, you know, the heir apparent to the England number one shirt. Uh, we can good enough it. for five years. Uh, apparently this is so. The point. Exactly. You can, you know, we've all watched Manuel Almunia. We all, know, we all knew it from the beginning. Mm. You can maybe cut him a bit of slack, give him a half a season, a season, if you really want to be generous, a couple of seasons, to see if he's going to evolve. But it's, it's never going to happen. It was never going to happen then, and then for the next three seasons, he's been the number one. And so the, the a teenager him. came along to... Exactly. It was almost a, a victim of circumstance, you know, with, with Fabianski's shoulder popping out mm. and uh, uh, Vito Manone, unfortunately for him, having gambled and signed it's, up for a season at Hull. His loyalty to his players is extraordinary, <coughs> but yeah. sometimes to his own detriment. Is that, and this is this is where my point of stubbornness comes in, and um, the, the notion of, of, of sheer morbid obsession with, with winning, with this this mm. bunch, this ragtag uh, assembled bunch of uh, never has beens, never will bees, and, and, and inadequates. I mean, We're um, not all like that. You know, you, you, oh no, 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 no not, at all, bit, not at all. I mean, couldn't, harsh. Have, couldn't have said that a month ago. So I, I'll be honest with you. I'm, I'm still nursing half a hangover from Saturday um, after my, <laughs> my believe it or not, my 30th birthday celebrations. But there we go. Um, so, yeah, I mean, apropos of that, and, I mean, uh, and, uh, and going back to his notion of stubbornness, I mean, I mean Tim, linked in with that is the, the constant complaining that Arsenal don't have a plan B, that, you know, whereas Ferguson is a wonderful pragmatist, Wenger will only play one way. I mean, do you subscribe to this theory that Wenger is not a good tactician? Ferguson is more than a pragmatist, and he's shown it against, uh, at West Ham. Absolutely. Where he was, he had one of his best games ever for Manchester United. He's far more than pragmatist. He's an imaginative pragmatist, which is what you need at a top club. He, he is incredibly stubborn, and, and, and Amy's first comments, I was thinking about this, this amazing sports scientist that arrived in 1996 and transformed not just Arsenal, but English football. We didn't have many of these concepts, the overseas manager, the diet, the style of play, but sports scientists constantly evolve. And I know Arsene mm. still goes to listen to Dave Brailsford from British Cycling. I know he'll turn up at these conferences, and yet his football setup still dates to 1996. Borrow, yeah. Pat Rice, himself, the training methods, how he flies them to games. So this brilliant scientist seems to be stuck in a time warp. The other thing I see with the stubbornness, I happened to be with him the day after the transfer window closed when we gave some evidence to this government select committee inquiry into football governance. And the MPs wanted to ask him about the Torres transfer and about the Andy Carroll transfer. 
and for the sort of look on his face at the idea that you'd spend this kind of money, but the only time in that meeting where he lit up, and he did say similar comments to the press later on that day, was when someone pointed out to him that his team cost less than Torres. But that, there was a look of delight there. I think there's a stubbornness as much about being a modern-day Brian, Brian Clough. And, and doing, I think it's as much about that as it is but, about you. But he is, Brian Clough had a Peter Taylor. Ah, and therein lies the rub, absolutely. But why does he, is he... And Alex Ferguson had a Brian Kidd and a Steve McLaren well, and a Carlos Carroll. Alex Ferguson constantly updates himself for people around him, recognises that challenge is good. Mm. Arsenal's team is the 1996 team. But the other thing that's interesting, it's completely 100% spot on, but what's even more amazing about it is you think that here's a guy, he's so clever, he's so sharp, he really understands the game. And, and yet, defensive coaching, it's like, it's like, what's the point? It's a completely throwaway part of his, uh, it's 50% of the game. <laughs> and if he doesn't want to do it, fine, no problem, you know, because he's, uh, he's brilliant at pr producing Wenger Ball, as it was, was known. That's <laughs> fine. But if, you've got to at least acknowledge that it needs to be done. So if he doesn't want to do it, get someone else in who will. It's not rocket science. And if you're talking about the tactician, I mean, we all know, we've, we've all cringed with the fact that he's probably the worst subber in the history of, um, of, of English football, or French football for that matter. Um, his, his plans and substitutions, I mean, that sound very harsh, but his plans and substitutions sometimes are the kind of things you would do if you were looking at over an under-11 team. So you'd bring in the two attacking players and you finish in a kind of, I don't know, 1-1-8 formation yeah. or something in like In the 69th or 70th minute. In the 60th yeah. minute. Which, again, it. It, you can set your clock by it, which sometimes has, I mean, th th there is logic to that, is that he's one of those managers uh, who likes to see when the first substitution of the opposing manager is going to be before he brings his own players on, which, which has some, you know, relatively, uh, you know, which is understandable. But, I mean, the game against Blackburn, one also was extremely puzzling is in, in the substitutions that took place, uh, was the fact that he brought on the big guys, uh, Shamak and Bantner, and um, took off the two guys who could deliver the ball from the sides, i.e. Andre Arshavin and Theo Walcott, who, by the way, not, you know, they, have, they hadn't been brilliant, but they had been the two most potent attacking forces in the game. They were a bit tired, well, come on, Blackburn were very tired too, and they were 10 v 11. And as far as tactics are going, he's not a tactical manager at all. He, he hardly, the way he prepares against the opposition, we knew we had something coming in the second leg against Barcelona, he had warned us actually beforehand, and, and he adopted for one of the very few times in his life uh, a, a different tactical disp disp disposition, as he'd done as well in the 2005-2006 European campaign where he got the 4-5-1 and made it work really well. But he's not that kind of, 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 of manager who will think about the opposition, think about himself, thesis, antithesis, no, we have a thesis, antithesis, synthesis. He's not a dialectical manager in terms of tactics. It's very much, this is the way I play, and I'm going to make us so good that we're going to beat anything that's put in front of us. Well, unfortunately, when somebody is quite good in front of you, that's not enough, and there's no fallback solution. So tactically, he's actually both brilliant in the way he prepares his team and quite naive, I think. In light of what happened <coughs> at the camp now, um, where Arsenal were, were schooled, uh, I, in my opinion, uh, watching that game, I mean, the, the fact that we were the first team in, 
what was it, eight or nine years of Champions League football to fail to muster a single shot off target, let alone yeah, a shot right on there. target. And do you think Wenger believes his assertion that if we had kept 11 men on the pitch, we would have won that game? Or is he doing as he I, always does and lying to the press to protect his players? No, no I, not only do I believe it, but I'm probably one of the only people who actually have come in as support with that. Uh, with actually, uh, strangely enough, quite a few people in Spain, uh, where people, maybe because of the divide between Barcelona and the rest, People are not so starry-eyed about the greatest team that's ever been, which is complete nonsense, anyway, and and realise that yes, actually, um, the game was there to be to be taken. I mean, if you look at games are not won in ninety minutes; they're won in short episodes of five or six seconds. And if you look at what happened at the camp now, there were there were three of those basically. Uh, there there was Cesc Fabregas back in, which led to the goal. There was uh, Robin van Persie equalising, and then there was the sending off. These were the moments that actually altered the game uh, as a narrative. And I, I do believe that he had the right plan in mind. I don't think necessarily he had the right personnel to start with. Brozyski, I'm sorry, I don't, I still, I'll never understand. But he had an idea, and the idea nearly worked and could have worked. And I think that the judgment which was passed on him was very harsh. I'm sorry if I'm correcting no, that's on right. that. And I, I, really, I really do think that there was, a, there was a, for once, there was actually a plan, a rational plan in place which nearly, nearly, nearly worked, and for which he hasn't been given any credit whatsoever. It would have worked if Fenton would yeah. taken his chance. Let's not even talk about that. I was thinking, when, when that happened, I was thinking of all my friends in the new camp who had written their, their pieces, yeah. and we would have to do a complete rewrite <laughs> before the deadline, thinking, oh, guys, you're in trouble now. Uh, there is plenty, plenty more of this to come, but unfortunately we're going to have to take a short break as Kevin's waving at me before we continue on in our next podcast. But as always, just to mention that if you want to email us about anything related to the podcast, our address is gunapodcast at gmail.com. Thank you once again to our sponsors, goonashirts.com, and there's just time for our panel to bid farewell. So thank you to Tim. Thank you. Amy. Thanks. And Philippe. Thank you very much. We'll be back with another edition of the podcast featuring more from our specially assembled celebrity guest panel very soon. In the meantime, I'm your host, David Udo, and thank you for listening. La-di-da-di-da, la-di-da-di-dee, all good friends and jolly good company, way.